Dear Father, we want to pray that as we look at your word, it fills us with excitement. Because truly it tells us of your plans, it tells us of who you are, and tells us of how truly, as we live in this world, we are all uh, truly uh, objects of your compassion and blessing. If only we will reach out to you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. How many people have you uh, shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with this year? Okay, I mean, obviously when I ask that question, all of you will start feeling a bit guilty. But I think honestly, it's good to reevaluate for the year, to just think back. As we come to uh, the last part of this year, how many times have you opened your mouth to share the gospel, the good news, or speak God's word into someone's life? Now today, I'm not here to talk to you about techniques or methods or tools, but I think I want to talk about motivation, heart, the core of ourselves, why it is that we find it so hard to share the good news with our neighbors, friends, and relatives. Now, obviously, we are studying the book of Jonah in our Bible study groups, and I'm going to shortcut the whole process because we're coming right to the end of Jonah in this sermon. We didn't even look at the beginning. And we're going to see the end anyway. You know what the ending is, so it's not going to be very uh, anticlimactic right, for you. But I think that as we look at today's passage, I think it tells us a lot about the motivation and also the failure of motivation to share the gospel with people. So let's begin by looking at chapter uh, 3, verse 1 to 10. Just that first uh, first section, okay? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let the people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat and or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Now, if we will, uh, if for those of you who are doing the Bible study, and I hope all of you are doing it, you remember, if you look up here on the slide, that God in chapter 1 and 2 had sent uh, Jonah from the, the northern kingdom in Israel all the way to Nineveh, which was a very large and very significant city in Assyria. And as we look at this passage, uh, we see that finally when he gets to Nineveh, after a bit of a detour in chapter 1 and 2, he preaches in a city and he preaches for how many days? Three days. Right? Three days. And those three days, what happened? There was a wonderful turning to God. People were fasting from the greatest to the least. They put on sackcloth, sackcloth as a symbol of repentance, of humility, of uh, sadness, right? And in fact, the funny thing is, if you actually pay attention, even the animals were covered with sackcloth, right? So the whole country uh, was filled with people and animals in sackcloth, crying out to God with compassion. But what's even more than that is that as we look in verse 10, we see that this repentance was real. It wasn't a put on, it wasn't some sort of uh, act. 
Because in verse 10 it says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and did not bring on them the destruction He had threatened. Now, here we see that the, the repentance was not something that was contrived or for show or fake, but was heartfelt and genuine. And what a wonderful thing that Jonah had done. Now, to put it into our context, think of it this way. Imagine one of us decides to, to become a missionary. And uh, he decides to go to one of the largest cities of, of the world today, one of the great metropolises, uh, Mumbai, Mexico City, Rio de Janeiro. We, the church here, get together, we, we vet this candidate, we support them, we send them to OMF, we set aside a budget for the lifetime of their work. And they learn the language, and then they go there, and after three days we get a phone call and say, Hey, what's the prayer point? I can come back now. The whole, the whole city has repented and become Christian. Right? You can save the, 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 the mission budget for the rest of my life. Now again, last week when we prayed our prayer meeting, we prayed for two people groups. I don't even know who was in the prayer meeting, whether you can remember who the groups are. I remember asking someone, they couldn't remember how, how many people it was. One of them was the Aceh people. No, they're not people in Indonesia. There's one people group called Aceh in China, which is a population of 41,000 people. Number of Christians, 0.00%. We prayed for another group called the Aurora people in India, population 4 million. Number of Christians, 0.00%. It's a bit like, imagine if we, as a church, decided, okay, this, this month we decide not to go to Batam for a mission trip, you know. Too much Batam already. Let's try, go to India or China. And we go there for a three-day mission trip. And after three days, the whole population goes from 0.00% to 100% Christian. We'll be thinking, what a great miracle it is. Praise God. Hallelujah. But then how does Jonah react? Well, chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tashish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, this but here is a surprising contrast. It is a real shock. Because instead of joy, rejoicing, praising of God, remember who Jonah is. He is a prophet of God. His job is to speak God's word. And as a prophet speaking God's word, one of the great things would be for people to actually take God's word seriously. But instead of rejoicing, praising God, he is greatly displeased. In fact, uh, the book of Jonah is a very, very sophisticated book. Uh, when we read it, we think, well, you know, it's just, just like a children's story. But it's very sophisticated. And a lot of it, uh, when you actually look at it in depth, uh, there's a lot of complexity to it. Now, <clears throat> the exact translation... For chapter 4, verse 1, is that if you, I think in your ESV it translates it to this, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah what God had done. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah and he became angry. You see, I want you to look back to chapter 3, verse 7 to 9. 
Because this is the exact opposite of the way the Ninevites felt when they related to God. In chapter seven, sorry, chapter three, verse eight, it says, "Let us give up their evil ways. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and, with compassion, turn from his fierce anger, so that we will not perish." You, you see the contrast there. See, for the Ninevites, they gave up their evil, and they prayed that God may turn away from his anger and his wrath, but. For the prophet, for the prophet Jonah, he found it exceedingly evil what God had did had done, and he turned to his anger. So it's almost a, an opposite, because in chapter three we see the Ninevites, the pagans, turning from their evil and actually being right with God, but here we see the prophet Jonah turning to evil and being angry with God. Now, what makes Jonah so hot under the collar? What makes him so angry? Well, the problem is he's angry at God's character. Isn't that what it says there in chapter 4, verse 2? He said, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, it's not as if Jonah had a you know a revelation of God's character this is you know this is what God is going to be like because this is the way that God has always consistently portrayed himself to his people see if you look up here on the slide in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses went up to Mount Sinai one of the first things that the Lord God said to Moses when he came down from the cloud and stood in front of Moses what did he say the first thing he said to him was, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. See, this is the way that God had revealed himself first and foremost to his people as a compassionate and a gracious God. This is the God of the Bible and this is the God that Jonah knew was like. And this is the shocking thing, isn't it? Because now we see in verse 2 why in chapter 1 Jonah was so, so persistent in trying to run away in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Because he knew that God was a compassionate God and he knew that God couldn't help himself. It's almost as if, right, so if you look up here on the slide, right, so next slide, okay, next one. So remember in the beginning of chapter 1, Right, that uh, Jonah had tried to take a boat to Tashish, but then God had brought him back. The next slide, uh, the next one, to Nineveh by the the big fish. Right, next slide. It's almost as if Jonah is saying to uh, to God, "You see, lah, you just couldn't help yourself, right? You just couldn't help yourself. You just had to go and be compassionate. You just had to go and forgive them. I knew you'd be like this." That's why I left, because I knew you just couldn't help yourself. But what is even more shocking was what comes next in verse 3, right? Because in verse 3, he says, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. It's what one, uh, one pastor, Dick Lucas, says, uh, this, at this point in time, uh, Jonah is a suicidal saint. 
He's a suicidal prophet. He prefers to die than see Nineveh saved. Now, why is that? Why, why would he prefer to die than to see Nineveh saved? Well, if you look at a bit of church history, you'll know that the Assyrians actually, at this point in time, were very uh, much a superpower of that region, and they had conquered uh, you know, God's people over time, and they were very ruthless. If you look back in history, the Assyrians were very cruel and ruthless conquerors. For all you know, maybe Jonah's cousin or nephew or great uncle or something had been killed by the Assyrians. So you think of your worst enemy and multiply it by 10 or 100, and that's how Jonah felt about the Assyrians. It's a bit like, I met this man before, uh, one of the people I play golf with, and he's Taiwanese. And he was telling me about how he used to be, come from a very rich family in Taiwan, but when the Japanese came, they confiscated all his parents' property and they were destitute. And up to today, he will not eat Japanese food. Okay? That's how much he feels uh, you know, anger against uh, the Japanese. Actually, actually, it's quite amusing, but it's not really like... Whenever we walk around the Japanese people, he'll be unhappy, right? He won't play well. But you know a lot of people, Japanese people play golf. So he's always unhappy, right? But that's how much, how much that Jonah hated the Assyrians. He hated them so much that he would rather die than, than having them be saved. But here comes the question, okay? And this question is very important in verse 4 because it is the theme. It is the question which runs through the whole of chapter 4. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Okay, this is the question that we have to keep thinking about. Is it right for Jonah to be angry? That is the question that keeps running through this chapter. And there's no answer at this point in time. We go on in the story, and we find in verse 5 that Jonah uh, got out of the city. Uh, he, he, remember, he walked through the city after three days, so he ends up on one side, and he ends up sitting outside the city, looking down at the city, probably on a bit of a mound or a hill. And he builds himself a shade and he waits to see what would happen to the city. Why does he do that? Why is he sitting, waiting outside the city, waiting to see what, had hap- what would happen? What is he waiting for? He's obviously waiting to see if God would change his mind to bring judgment on Nineveh. Right? That's what he's doing. He's, you know, it's like a bit childish, right? You know, you tell your, your son or your daughter, no, 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 that's not going to happen. So they just sit there. And they sort of sit there and hold their breath and, and wait for something different to happen, right? And that's exactly what, what Jonah is doing. He's sitting there, watching this great city, waiting, hoping, maybe even praying, that God would change his mind and bring judgment on this great city of Nineveh. Well, he's waiting there. You notice it gets very hot. right? He tries to build a shade, but... But uh, it doesn't really work, right? So the sun's shining down on him. And like one commentator said, he's very hot emotionally. And now he gets very hot physically, right? But then God does something very interesting in verse 6. God provides a leafy plant. Now, uh, apparently in the Middle East, there are these things called the castor bean trees, which apparently grow very, very fast, up to 12 feet, with big, large leaves. But uh, obviously, the castor bean plants don't grow as fast as this. But then, 
Then again, remember God provided the fish in chapter 1. So there's something supernatural happening here. God provided this this tree, which obviously had very accelerated growth. And then this big, big leaf gives him shade. And you notice how Jonah reacts. It says that Jonah was very happy with the plant. See, Jonah is a a man of of great moods, right? Great emotions. First up, he is exceedingly displeased, very angry, but now he becomes exceedingly glad. That's exactly the translation. He's exceedingly glad that this plant and this leaf is now over his head. But within the next 24 hours, at dawn the next day, God provides something else. He doesn't provide air conditioning. He provides a worm, a hungry worm. And the worm chews the plant so that it withered. So apparently these castor bean plants, they're very, very sensitive plants. So if, if they are attacked in any way, the plant withers very quickly. So this is the case. Then God provides something else. In verse 8, God provided a scorching east wind. Right, it was like sitting next to a hairdryer for, for Jonah in the hot sun. And again, it's so hot, right? That what does he say? He says, I would prefer to die rather than to live. Now, this is very different than um, uh, the book of Job, right? Remember the book of Job? Job lost his family. Job lost his wealth. And he says, the Lord gave and the Lord take away, but the name of the Lord be praised. But Jonah's not like Job. Jonah is very angry. He is suicidal again. He wants to die. God asks him the same question. Verse 9. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Right? Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And this time, Jonah answers, It is, he said. I'm so angry I wish I were dead. And here then, God answers Jonah about this question, do I have a right to be angry? And we will do well to pay attention because this is quite a complex statement by God. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Should I I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals. Now, this answer is an answer of great profound depth. I think it's equal to to any of the answers that Jesus gives to the Pharisees or the Sadducees. It's it's, it's a multi-level answer. He's like a master surgeon God, you know, whose skill he cuts open the heart of Jonah reveals what's inside his heart. And the first thing he says is, you consider the vine, right? Think about this vine, Jonah, that I I sent to you. First of all, the the vine is only a plant, right? That's why he calls it. You're concerned about this plant. That's all it is. It's only a plant. And you didn't feed it. You didn't grow it. You didn't plant it. And more than that, this plant which you didn't invest in, you didn't plant, you didn't feed, you didn't cultivate, only lasted less than 24 hours. Right? The word overnight keeps being repeated. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Easy come, easy go. But yet you are so angry. Why are you so angry? Because you are selfish. You are only concerned about God's compassion 
as it relates to you. Right? You're only concerned about self-interest because you're happy to receive God's compassion. In fact, when you were enjoying the shade of the vine, you were very happy to sing, My God is a gracious and compassionate God. You're willing to, to sing it to the heavens. But then when that compassion was withheld, then you are very angry. But that's such a contrast to the Ninevites. Because when I gave compassion to the Ninevites, you became very angry. And you would become very glad if I withheld compassion to the Ninevites. You see the contrast? He's very happy when he receives compassion for himself. He's angry when other people receive compassion. He's very angry when that compassion is withheld, but then he wants for the Ninevites to not get God's compassion. You see, the problem with Jonah is he is only thinking of himself. He's happy for God's compassion to be poured out all over him. But he doesn't want God's compassion for other people. Then God goes on to say, as we investigate a bit more, about the relative worth of that single plant that Jonah is exceedingly glad about. You see, he says to Jonah, hey, look, you know, think about this plant for a moment. It's only a plant. You didn't plant it. You didn't cultivate it. You didn't feed it. didn't make it grow. Sprang out overnight. It died overnight less than 24 hours. What is the relative value of this plant compared to a great city like Nineveh where there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And I think the point that he's pressing home here is that you seem to be so, so concerned about this plant. But what about people? What about the souls of people? What about the 120,000 people which are in the city? And I think that's where the funny little thing that comes in at the end is a bit of uh, God trying to push in the dagger a bit more, right? Because he says, and many animals. Now you see, look at, it, look at what it says there, the very last part of there, right? It says, shouldn't you be concerned about these animals? Surely even the animals in Nineveh are worth more than the plant that you are so worried about. And I think what we're supposed to see here is that Jonah is selfish about the plant, but he doesn't see the value in people. He doesn't even see the value in the animals in Nineveh. He has a poor understanding of what is really valuable in life. And here, finally, God addresses the uh, question, but he leaves another question, isn't it? So Jonah doesn't answer. You notice if you look at this passage very carefully, the question that God gives in verse 11 is never answered by Jonah. Right? It says, should I not be concerned over this great city? In fact, I think I prefer the earlier translation of the NIV because that is just the last question. Should I not be concerned over this great city? That's what he says. It ends with a question. We don't know whether Jonah actually changed. We don't know Jonah actually repented. But I think that when we read Jonah, if it was written by Jonah, then I think obviously Jonah had repented and recorded this for us so that we as the readers, we as the listeners would be challenged and we would ask ourselves, 
Do we share Jonah's attitude or do we share God's attitude to people? You see, that's very interesting, isn't it? If you were to ask yourself the question, what concerns you more? What concerns you more? The compassion that God has for people to save people or do you have greater concern for the compassion that God shows you in sending you material things or ease or comfort? See, I sometimes wonder whether in our own lives we have our own vines, our own shades that God has provided us that we care so much more about than for the souls of people. Because that's something that comes through when you're reading this, isn't it? Because that's what Jonah seemed to be more worried about. He was worried about that little leaf hanging over his head than he was about 120,000 souls in Nineveh. Uh, actually, I was thinking about what, why I asked us earlier. I mean, does it concern us if our rugby team or our soccer team uh, wins or loses? Or whether a friend or a relative or a workmate is saved? Because I think that's what in view is in view here. It's a hard issue. And I think that for myself, even if I examine myself, many times I would be more upset about the things that happen to me. I mean, I'm driving around my car, I get a dent or something, I'll be very, very upset. But then, you know, I might have some neighbor, friend or relative who I see every day or every year at Chinese New Year and they are never saved, and it doesn't bother me at all. But does that show something about me? Is it because I lack the compassion that God has, and I lack the ability to see that, well, things are not so important as people? And I think that for ourselves, as we reflect on this question, uh, there's something else that presses upon us. Because in many ways, we are not like Jonah. I mean, we were... We're not specific, you know, God doesn't specifically ask us to go to Mumbai or Rio de Janeiro or Mexico City, no. But then all of us, in a sense, are challenged by God to make disciples, right? Because we now live on the other side of the cross. So Jesus had said to his apostles, his disciples, right? So if you look up here, the slide. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Excuse me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now at the very least, when we read this passage, It shows what Jesus wants of his disciples. It shows us that even though we're not like Jonah, but yet we too have been called by God to go and to make disciples. Now remember Don Carson in his commentary said that, look, some people might say that we are not the same as the 11 disciples, we're not apostles. But in the same way, they are our models. This is recorded for us so that they will be an example, a model of how we should live our Christian life as disciples of Christ. Right? Jesus preached to save souls. Uh, The apostles preached and saved souls. So should we not now follow them and preach and save souls? See, remember what we read in Philippians earlier this year. 
where we read, finally, brothers, what is true, what is noble, whatever is excellent, whatever is sorry, right and pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me and seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, the apostles were calling us not just to follow their preaching, but also their living. And I think in the same way, it shows to us that just as Jonah was called to reach out and tell people about God's compassion, so we are told to go out and to tell people about God's compassion. You see, I wonder whether for ourselves, we don't see this great call to go out to tell people about God's compassion. So come back with me again to the book of Jonah. How does it describe the people of Jonah? Oh, sorry, the people of Nineveh. It says that Nineveh, in verse 11, was a great city full of people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand. But what does that mean? Does that mean that literally they had, they were, had a problem with telling which... <laughs> hey, you know, I've got a right, right here, left. Okay, so I know which hand is... I don't think that's what God is saying. God is saying that they were spiritually ignorant. They don't know what is right or left. They don't know what is good or bad. They don't know the way to God. And it required someone to go there to tell them. See, I think for us, we fail to see that we are living in a world where there are many people who don't know their right hand from their left hand. They're spiritually ignorant and they require us to go there and tell them, just as Jonah did. See, if you think about the Christian life, if you look up here on this slide, right? Okay, so this is, I'm getting more sophisticated now. Okay, So you think about it, about how the Christian message goes and to people. Okay, so for, first of all, for many of us, uh, how many of you became a Christian, you know, later in life? You would be familiar with this. First of all, someone engages with you. They, they, they build a relationship with you, right? They talk to you, whatever. Okay, then they evangelize you, right? Then after they evangelize you, you become a Christian. And then you become established as a Christian. So first up, you become a, a new Christian. All right, next slide. I mean, next one. And now over time, you become a more mature Christian. But the problem is that for many Christians, they think that's the end of the process. Right? I think I become a Christian, I become saved, I grow in Christ, and that's the end of the story. But actually, that's not the way it is, isn't it? So I was reading this book in the Trellis and the Vine, and this is where the diagram came from. The next slide. The thing is, actually, as we grow in Christ, then we have a responsibility to serve as mature Christians to make disciples. Right? That's just the way it is. As we know more about God's compassion, we share God's compassion with people. And what happens next is, next slide, okay, next one. So as we make disciples, then these people then repeat the process. They go out and engage people. They go out and evangelize. They go out to make establish them, and then they go on to make more disciples. And I think that's the way it is. You see, part of the problem that we have is a self-focused, self-centered, self-interested approach to our Christian life. We're very happy to receive God's compassion. So Jonah was very glad to receive the compassion of God when he 
was uh, saved by the fish. And he spent the whole of chapter 2 thanking God for his compassion. Right? You know, you read the whole chapter 2, it's all about thanking God about his compassion. Jonah was very glad to receive the compassion of God in sending the vine. But he has no intention to share the compassion with other people. And we are in the same shoes. Think of how blessed you are that you have received God's compassion and are saved today. It is because God has saved you and brought you into his kingdom. But are you selfish like Jonah? You just want to receive God's compassion. You don't want to share it with other people. You see, all you need to do is to have two things. You need a H-E-A-R-T and you need a M-O-U-T-H. You need a heart that desires to want to go out to share the good news and you have to have a mouth which is willing to open to tell people the good news. I remember in, um, in the third service, we were doing Romans chapter 10 and this is what we did a few weeks ago. And this is what Paul said, right? He said, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And if you want to put it in a diagrammatic format, this is it, isn't it? You need to go to people, you need to engage them, you need to speak to them, they need to hear you so that they can believe and God can call them. I always remember how when I was in theological college, we do door knocking, which is a very scary form of evangelism. We just actually go up to the door, knock on the door, and share the gospel. And, and I think it's, in Australia, it's particularly difficult. It's not like HDB flat. You know, there's so many flats all around, right? But HDB, I mean, like in Australia, you actually have to walk up the, the walkway. You know, like, and every step you're taking, you're thinking, this is a really silly idea. And I remember once I went with a friend, right? We, we went to this, this house, and there was, a, there was a skull of a bull with these big horns at the top. And I was thinking... What outlaw is living here, right? Okay, might get shot coming here. Anyway, my lecturer said he once went to this magnificent house. And uh, this house, he was standing in front of it, and he could see there was a swimming pool in it. And he could see that at the back of the house, there was a view of the Sydney Harbour with the bridge. And this house was two-story, huge, and he was thinking, what am I doing here? Right. What could I possibly offer the occupants of this house that they really do not have. But then he remembered that actually they were missing something. For everything they had, they still had not received the compassion of God. They were still not saved and forgiven. And he went in there and with his mouth, he told them the good news of Jesus. You see, that's what it is, isn't it? At the end of the day, we are called to use our mouth to share the gospel. I think part of the problem that we have is that we try to avoid evangelism by doing everything else than opening our mouth to tell people about Jesus. So I remember there was an illustration that I read in this evangelism book about how, I think in America, there were these Vietnamese who were moving into the suburb. And these Christians uh, came to the church and they said, what are we going to do about these Vietnamese who are moving? We've got to evangelize them. Let's set up a committee and let's think about running a program for them. And the pastor uh, said, this is really good. It's really great that you have a heart to want to reach out to these Vietnamese. He said, but 
but where are they? And he says, oh, well, this one just moved in right next door to me. And the pastor challenged the man. He said, well, have you invited them over for a meal? Have you tried to befriend them? Have you tried to use your own mouth just to talk to them about Jesus Christ? You see, at the end of the day, that's all evangelism is. It's about using your mouth to talk to the person next to you. It's not about creating a big event, about running committees. It's about just talking to the person next to you. I remember when I was an accountant, um, I had a supervisor from England and, 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 and he wasn't a Christian, so I invited him to an evangelistic event at church. And I was really, really happy because he accepted and he came with his wife, or his girlfriend at the time, and uh, we listened to the talk. And after the talk, uh, he, he had some questions. So I said, okay, no, 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 don't ask me. I was a very young Christian. And I said, go and speak to my pastor right here. So I got him to speak to my pastor. Then afterwards, my pastor said, why don't you just answer his questions? They weren't very difficult. Right? It's just, it would be so much easier if you just answered his questions as they came about. You, know, you don't have to keep sending this person to me. And I think that's true, isn't it? Because evangelism is something that we can all share because once we receive God's compassion, we just share it to other people. So someone gave this definition of evangelism, which I think is a very good one. Right? So evangelism is just teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ with the aim to persuade. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm just Whenever I talk to people, you're talking to people with the aim to persuade them to believe in Jesus Christ. All you need is to have a heart to want to love people like God does and a mouth that can speak words, which I think all of you can. See, in conclusion, I remember I once knew a person who uh, lived overseas, again, uh, um, lived in a very, very big house, a swimming pool, five bedrooms, a view of uh, harbour. And this person chose to give that up to come back to Asia to care for his parents because his parents were not Christian. So I was wondering, why, why would that person give that up, right? I mean, it seems like so many, such a wonderful life. And that person said, because the souls of his parents were more important than living in this place. At the same time, I know of another person, I was having lunch with this guy, and he was in the missions committee of another church. And we were eating... We were interrupted by uh, another man, an elderly man. And this guy said, hey, I haven't seen you for a long time. And this elderly man said, oh, yes, um, we've migrated to Perth. Right? And, uh, and um, so my friend, I, did, I didn't really know this guy very well, said to him, said, what are you doing in Perth? And he said, oh, uh, you know, I, I always wanted to go there to retire because I wanted to have a really nice garden. Because I really like gardening. So he said, what do you do most of your time? I just spend it all gardening. Anyway, so the, the guy left. And uh, not that I have anything against gardening. I think gardening is good. But this guy left and my friend said to me, he said, this is his exact words to me. He said, he could do so much more for God in his retirement. And I think it's true. It's like, not that there's anything against gardening, but, but it's just that this guy seemed to say that his, he was living in some remote place and all he did was gardening. And imagine when Jesus Christ comes again, what is he going to show for his life after he's retired. Hey God, look at all these wonderful plants I planted for you. Look at all these tomatoes, look at all these pumpkins. 
But at the end of the day, all these plants will be burnt away, right, when Jesus comes again. Uh, the only thing that really matters is the souls of people. So I wonder for us whether this is a real challenge as well. That as we read uh, these last two chapters of Jonah, the question for us is, do we really, really want to share, have a heart for the compassion of souls and people? Or, or do we think that things are, are really, really important? Because it is a challenge for us, isn't it? We have to ask ourselves, if we don't evangelize, then why are we doing it? Is it because we are selfish like Jonah? We just want God's compassion for ourselves. We don't share God's compassion for other people. And also we, we don't use our mouths to share the gospel to save other people. And we spend our times doing things, times and effort, time and effort doing things which are really, really, at the end of the day, really unimportant in the light of judgment and eternity. So I hope that uh, as we re- reflect on what's happening here, that you would think through these things and really make an effort to pray and to try to share the gospel with people. Let's go to God in prayer. Uh, dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to learn from uh, this really deep book in the book of Jonah to see that your great prophet uh, really had to be instructed by you And that instruction relates just as powerfully to us. Do we value the wrong things? Do we value things of this world more than the souls of people? In terms of our heart, does it hurt us more when our cars or our clothes or our vestments or our sporting teams uh, do badly or get affected in some way? Or do we, do we see that actually the souls of our neighbors, our friends, our relatives, our classmates, our workmates, uh, these things are the things that should give us cause for concern. Uh, and that when these people come to faith, it is only because we are able to bring the good news into their life. Dear Father, help us not to be selfish. Help us not to only want your compassion for ourselves, but to see that we have been instructed, just like Jonah, to bring your compassion to the people around us. And we pray that we may truly see that all of us here have the tools for evangelism, a heart that is willing, a mouth that speaks, and that we will use these tools uh, to bring your compassion to people around us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.